Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Mother of mercy. Jesus. <laughs> My grandma always said that. Uh, she uh, I, uh, passed away about eight or nine years ago, but she was a hundred. Almost a hundred one. Mother of mercy. I wasn't expecting that to start the podcast. So today we are Usually talking. we're like, what? who goes first? <laughs> <laughs> today we're talking about shared decision making. So I'm sorry. When I was in residency, Dr. Wildey, did you, you didn't know Dr. Wildey. He started right after no. you. SDM, like when you're a resident, you know, you have all these, whatever, SDM, SDM. That's all he said all the time. Shared decision-making, shared decision-making. You know, the funny thing is the way- He was so advanced (laughs) because that was kind of a new thing. This patient shared decision-making, the medical home concept, like where the patient actually matters in their own healthcare. But you know, here's the thing. When I was growing up, you know, doctors said something and people did it. It was kind of like in my house. I, my dad would be like, I'd be like, Hey, can I go over to so-and-so's house? No. You can't. I'd be like, hey, can we discuss it? Absolutely. And then we would discuss it. And I'd make up all these great points. And my dad would say, really appreciate the conversation. Uh, I really think you made some great points. I'm like, so I can go? No, you can't go. Because <laughs> <laughs> I said no already. Right. This was just a discussion. Right, so right. That's the way old the old way was. You know, the doctor said. The paternalistic model. Correct. We actually did some type of a survey. You know, the question, you know, kind of like those surveys that tell you your personality type. We did one of those early in medical school. Well, I guess probably like second year before we like got to meet patients on that. Like, huh. what is your provider style like what kind of physician style are you gonna have the paternalistic there was like four different options i was like the opposite of paternalistic i'm not I don't sure even what that go. is um, paternalistic is exactly what you described i know but no. I, I don't know what the opposite would be i don't know You're the like, fact that i don't go by doctor ever probably is one of them <laughs> here's you you'd be like I don't know what to do. Um, do you have an idea? <laughs> Did you look at Wikipedia before you came in? <laughs> hey, let's go with what they said. That's absolutely not how I doctor, I promise. So anyway, um, so we're going to talk about shared decision-making as it is kind of relating to opioid prescribing. Because now that whole thing is, well, people are on opioids. What do we do? You know, we're, we're going to need to have a conversation. And, and if you're young, you're having a convo. Convo. <laughs> we're having a chat. Okay, but the... The premise of shared decision-making, before we get into the patient thing, just really quickly, because I love it, so I can say this fun word, is that the whole point is that it I've enables the physician. No, it kind of like forces the physician to respect patient autonomy. Yeah. And then, of course, ensuring beneficence. <laughs> ensures beneficence. Beneficence. That's the second thing in the Hipp- Hippocratic Oath. What? The- the first thing in the Hippocratic Oath is first do no harm, which means maleficence. Well, first do no maleficence. And then the second part is, and do good, I do hate to, beneficence. I hate to say this, but my son was in the hospital when I graduated from medical school, and I came running in after they'd done that. You never did your Hippocratic Oath. No, I walked in, grabbed my diploma, literally stepped in line, got my diploma. I My son was in the hospital, so... Oh. That's yeah. good. So I never did that, so I don't know what you're talking about. I, you know, one thing my, you know, dad actually gave me was this huge, I have a huge canvas of the Hippocratic Oath with like Hippocrates on it. 
But that's the whole thing. Like, oh. First, do no harm. Next, do good. Non-maleficence, do beneficence. Well, it's that whole avoid harm or first, do no harm. See, those are backwards. They did the backwards version in your PowerPoint here on the order of the Hippocratical. So really the point, of course, is to kind of empower a patient, you know, giving them an active role. So if they're on opioids and and you're inheriting this patient, how do you have that conversation about where we go next? You know, it's been actually, you know, this patient shared medical decision making clearly. <laughs> so the guy who's clearly never trained in it doesn't know how to say it. <laughs> Clearly, that's the discussion you have to have. And we, you and I have had those discussions many times. I, I've gotten a lot of patients from the pain clinic. So Kurt and I lately. actually have these decisions together all the time. Like, well, do you think we should do this? Well, Kurt, I value your opinion. And I, what do you think about this? But no, we're doing it my way. <laughs> yeah, we're still doing it my way. JK. So anyway, so basically it is, again, let's continue to rehash the shared. Obviously, you're collect, you and the patient are discussing how to make the healthcare-related decisions. My job as the provider, the physician, is to give you all the information and to kind of like explain why this way would be more healthy, more safe, more beneficial than this way. But ultimately, I tell my patients this all the time. If I prescribe a medication for you and you know that you are going to go home and never take the medication, just tell me now. It saves me so much time having to send it in. You know, and that, that's kind of like that's your decision making. If you're not going to take it, tell me and we'll discuss something else. Interesting concept. You know, it's funny. You because should try you, it because then you won't have to waste all that extra time in the EMR. I mean, frequently, you know, you have that back and forth conversation. Kind of like my dad, didn't he didn't think I should go to my friend's house. And his point was, the last time you went there, you were escorted home by the police. <laughs> so it's like... Oh my gosh, you just uh, said that on... This is I? forever and in, out in cyberspace world. I finally told him that story about three years ago at Christmas. But anyway, so yeah, it was... But I think that, you know, having that back and forth of why each person thinks a certain way or what's safest for the patient is really what's important. Plus, the patient had their voice heard they have some buy-in because you as the physician is showing them that you actually do care what they think about their own health care, surprisingly. So if you can kind of get that buy-in, you get them thinking. Sometimes, like this patient I saw today, actually came to what my recommendation was way before I got there because I knew they weren't going to be quite ready for me to say, stop using this drug. We just had a conversation. Oh, did you happen to notice the parallel between that and that? What do you think about that? Oh, you're right. I should probably. Yeah, he made that decision on his own kind of deal. And so this is having those conversations. So the patients have a say, a buy-in. You end up having better outcomes. So when we're talking about opioid prescribing, this is your lovely red hot button oh, argument here. And these topic. are really, honestly, these are, you know, no joking aside because I never joke. No joking aside, meaning we're joking. It should say no joke. all joking aside. All joking aside. Sorry. There you go. <laughs> and my computer's frozen up, so I'm like uh, really struggling here. Does it need some icy hot like your knees? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So, so I think when we look at this from a kind of the standpoint of opioids, it it's really about what conversation are you going to have with the patient that would kind of help you make these decisions? Because often physicians have pretty good reasons that a patient shouldn't be on a higher dose. 
shouldn't be started on opioids. Uh, and the patient has a lot of reasons why they feel they like should. they should be on it. And I think those have to be listened to. Well, and I think sometimes people go in to the, see the doctor, and especially if we're talking about something hot button, like opioids, doctor says, this is bad. Don't do this. It's a lot of threats. Like you tell your kids, don't smoke cigarettes. You're going to get lung cancer. Don't do this because you're going to get this. It's a lot of threats. Yes. Whereas this is, let's explain. Let's have a conversation about these points we're going to make here in a second. And... But you, as the patient, kind of get to that conclusion that I was going to get to. It just takes way longer. And I think we're going to have to get through these fairly quickly because your kids are waiting. Um, <laughs> so I think that often family members are actually involved as well. And so, for instance, sometimes we'll see patients who have significant cogni- cognitive. <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was like the perfect... Stutter point well, in, the, you've ever made. The like, problem, almost yeah. like you tried to do it. The problem is it made it sound like maybe I'm not cognitively exactly there. Exactly why it was. So perfect. anyway, I mean, I think, in, and I have run into this situation where I have a patient who really is having difficulty functioning at home, and they're on opioids, and often, again, they can overdose by taking their dose two or three extra times during the day. Maybe they can't see the instructions on the, you know, even on the bottle, even if they're set up. Right. And so. We and did they even hear the instructions? Yep. So sometimes we're having this conversation with the family saying, I think we need to bring these things down because of a safety issue. Right. I mean, and this is almost one of those, this is what I would consider like a soft threat in a way. Like if you're not seeing the instructions or what if you forget and you take an extra dose, you know, the risk of that could be that you do stop breathing or you do X, Y, Z. Because, and it wasn't on purpose. I'm not, you know, like people, are you calling me an addict or whatever they say. No, I am not saying you have any type of high-risk behaviors whatsoever. But the fear is if you forget and you take more, there's no intent there to take more. That could be, you know, a safety issue like you just said. Yeah, and for me, it's really about, it's about patient safety and making sure that they understand that you're not, it's not some kind of negative conversation on opioids. It's a safety issue that we're concerned about your health. And when we look at that, we look at high doses the same way. If we look at roughly about 3% of the older adults who are on opioids are actually on more than 120 morphine equivalents. And as we all know, there is a dose-dependent association to adverse events. So as we get higher, we need to be able to have that conversation with the patient about the potential roadblocks or bumps in the road to taking it. Okay, let's go bumps in the road. (laughs) (laughs) There's no roadblock. So how do we explain that to the patient, though? So rather than saying, you're old, you're taking too much, you're going to die of an overdose, clearly that's not going to work, you know? And and you're telling them, we need to cut you back because of these things, and a patient's going to get defensive. I would get defensive. So it's more explaining why this is what you feel sometimes explaining the why before you even say what you're wanting to say is helpful and so you know in older adults there's a lot of reasons that you can tell them why they have more risk you know they're unfortunately i usually what i usually say is okay because you've had a lot of birthdays your kidneys and birthdays are happy Birthdays are exactly. happy. But because you've had a lot of these amazing birthdays with all the candles and the cake, because who doesn't love cake and ice cream? I love cake. I know. Me too. You like chocolate cake. I always mm-hmm. preferred marble cake. But anyway, it's because you've had a lot of birthdays, your kidneys, your liver, all of that's also had a lot of birthdays. And when 
your kidneys and liver have had a lot of birthdays, they sometimes slow down a little bit. They don't necessarily get rid of the stuff the way they should have. You know, are you bringing that down to a lower education level because I'm old? No, I always use the birthdays. Why? Because it's a happy thing and people laugh. So if you get them in a good mood and you're joking, it tends to ease that anxiety of we need to cut your meds off. Because usually patients are anticipating where you're going. I had a patient recently and actually that kind of fits this next issue with the long acting opioids. And this person was on two different opioids, but one of them was long acting. And she was quite elderly and had an event that landed her in the ER. We don't use the word elderly. I'm, I'm just, I'm just older I'm adult correcting, not for you, but for others yep. listening. Okay. So she's an older adult. She ended up in the ER and <laughs> things weren't going well, but she was on a long acting opioid. And so we sat down and uh, had this conversation about the risk of those, which is actually about two times the risk of overdose with compared to short acting. So, so I want to make a comment on this and in a way out my age, <laughs> Because your, your generation was taught you have to prescribe these are safe medications. Correct. When I was going through training, yeah, yeah we talked about your decision-making in medical home. We had that going for us. However, this is what we were taught. We were taught that two things. One, if a patient actually needs the pain meds, they, they won't get addicted. Eh, that's not correct. But we were also taught that it's best to do a long-acting twice a day with very infrequent or rare short-acting throughout the day. That is what we were, that is what my generation was taught. It changed like three times. It did. And so I just want to point that out because, you know, we kind of sometimes say the generational difference between the providers who were, had all this fake data shoved down their throats to prescribe. I didn't have that, but this is what I was taught. And so, you know, a lot of this long acting stuff has to do with metabolism and, and all of that. And yeah. But, you know, the reality is that, there are studies that show anything above 20 morphine equivalents is really risked with, gives you that risk of opioid-induced respiratory depression, the whole overdose thing. And it's only under 20 that tends to be a little bit more safe. And so, you know, again, uh, less is better. Under 20. So that's like, yeah. like, five that's like oxy- four Vicodin. Yeah, that's like four Vicodin a day. And that's hydrocodone. And once you start going up, the risk uh, becomes pretty ugly. So, uh, and that's know, chronic. I just want to point out this is chronic. Yeah, that's cr- and again, yeah, that's what we're talking about is chronic, uh, and of course, anything above that hundred, you know, then we start to get more respiratory depression. We get more complications. It's dose dependent, right? And of course, though people argue with that. So sometimes explaining this and not saying it's easy to get to decrease or taper down, but explaining this, explaining that people need to help set up their meds. People need to understand this. I feel like these. I went backwards. I, I suspect you did. And I think when we look at the, you know, I've had patients show up and they're on, in my mind, the wrong opioid, right? Because the renally cleared opioids like morphine and hydromorphone and those things, you know. Meperidine. <laughs> Who prescribed yeah, that? Nobody. I've never prescribed Demerol in my entire life. Oh, man, I haven't in 30 years. I said no to a lot until recently, but did Demerol really? Yeah. So the creatinine clearance is important in some of these. And so sometimes we have to switch people's meds and we have to have that conversation about what safety is based on the type of med. And so I think um, it's that shared decision-making what's safer for you if you truly need the opioids. Right. And sometimes it's that, like you said, transitioning, and then maybe that then leads to the next step of maybe dosing safer. Um, You know, oxycodone, hydrocodone are going to be a better choice if they have some renal impairment. Um, can we talk about falls? I love 
this part. Although, can I just mention, if they have liver issues, we don't want to go there. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, false. Never mind. Never mind. So false. I love, you know, this whole thing about false. And I think people just don't think about it. I mean, they don't realize that the benzos and the opioids, boy, you know, people fall down and that's huge. I mean, there's... Well, and falls are common in older adults regardless of the medications they're on. Let's think of an older male. Let's just go older adult male. And the Excuse reason me? I'm saying it is just because I can add another med. What's the number on older? Um, you're Let's 60. go 70. 70, yes. Uh, 70, I like that. Or 65, whatever. It doesn't matter. Older adults, a lot of birthdays. 27,000 deaths a year from falls. I mean, $2.8 million, million, million ER visits. But here's the deal. If we're even not looking at opioids... Just the concept of falling. You're on blood pressure meds, potentially. And then you have an older male who's also on Flomax to help us, you know, BPH, takes that at night. There's another thing that'll lower your blood pressure. They probably have a throw rug because, you know, the significant other thinks throw rugs are pretty. I mean, I'm just going out there. Or they have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, which is very common in older adults. And if there's, like, a bath mat... You know, so for the shower and all that, another thing to trip. So falls are common, and then you throw something like a benzo or an opioid on top of it. Like, I don't know how everybody doesn't fall. So if people are falling, we have to have that discussion with them. Let's say they've been in the ER for a fall. You say, listen, you're on opioids. (laughs) I'm sorry, I turned the slide. Yeah, I mean, it's like... More than a quarter of older adults fell at least once. Yeah, I haven't fallen this year, Mm. (laughs) but I'm I'm only 61 I was 70, I'd have fallen probably. Um, But I do think that prior to this, I mean, we know that the opioid dose affects overdose and all-cause mortality, all these things, right? But do falls, does the the relationship, is there a relationship with dosing? And actually, there was just a recent study on that. It does the dose make a difference in how how often people fall? Hmm. So I'm going to go through this EMR review, 10 primary care clinics. They looked at the average daily morphine equivalents for, for the more greater than four prescriptions opioids in the year. Wow, that's a low number. Isn't that crazy? I have not read this data or read this article. And I'm sorry, I, y'all. I turned the slide here that Kurt did these slides. Thank goodness. I may have done this study. Okay. No, that's not true. This is actually a real study. I, you guys, I wish you could see this. I should probably tell you soon, but... Yeah. That number? Yeah. 37 morphine equivalents. So average, greater than 37 morphine equivalents, 47% greater risk of falls compared to those taking, it should say fewer than, not less than, Ugh. 37 morphine equivalents. 37 morphine equivalents. So let's let's even round up to 40, okay? Okay, let's just say 40. Let's say 40. That's like not much. <laughs> like it, what, it's a 10 of... Oxy, three, not even three times a day. That's I'm not, trying to do math, one and a half. That doesn't, that's hard math. Let's do hydrocodone. That's like six, five milligram hydrocodones, eight of them if we're talking 40. And once you get above that, you're going to fall down. So, so again, a conversation out of the patient. Here's why I'm concerned about what you're on. And here's the reasons I would say, let's bring it down a little bit. I don't want you to fall. Yeah, and, because what is the morbidity? Well, think about it. You break your hip. Well, no, and I remember learning this. This is different because this next slide has to do with benzos. But, like, I remember learning in med school. I heard it again in residency, like, all over. If you fall and break a hip, the morbidity 
is 50%. Yeah, it's something like Or mortality that. is 50%. Mortality. Mortality. All-cause mortality. If you fall and break a hip and you're greater than 65, you have a 50% chance of dying in the next year. It's one year, 50% chance. This is exactly why I don't go running when it's slippery. We go on the treadmills, Chris and I do. So, yeah. So anyway. And remember that co-prescribing. So when Are we you see- calling Chris old because- Chris he's younger is than you, but let's call him old. He's like 46, 40-something. Okay, you weren't supposed to say that because he's older than I am, but younger than you. My running partners are like 20 years younger. But anyway, so we also have to, when we see patients, we're having conversations about their opioids, think about benzos. And if you look at the benzo situation with opioids, there's a huge association between that co-prescribing, especially over the age of 65. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, if you look at the... Uh, the risk of fracture. I mean, when you use these things together in the month prior, their probability of falling and having a hip fracture, four times higher. So crazy. Four times. So when you use those together, people think, oh, it's not that big a four deal. Four times higher than 47%. I mean, right? If we're taking more than 37 morphine clopalins, what most people are, if we're looking at the one study, 40%, 47 greater risk, and then we're going to like add on four times higher. You lost me with the math. Either way, it's bad. If you're on benzos yeah. and more than 37 morphine equivalents, that's not a high yeah. dose of morphine equivalents. And these you patients, are falling over all the time. Yeah, the reality is these people fall more and end up in the ER more, bottom line. So I think about the last, one of the last things we're going to talk about is alcohol. So if you have, one of the big issues we see is that if people have one use disorder or even, you know, alcohol, well, let me start over. We see people on opioids and they may have a use disorder. And often we're not asking those questions. This is a huge issue, especially when we look at, at the alcohol use in people. Um, if you look at people with chronic pain, about 23% of those people have a diagnosis of alcohol use disorder. That's a lot. It's a ton. And so... We always have to think about that. And if you look at patients who present for alcohol use disorder treatment, about half on average have had a history of moderate to severe pain. So they hmm. go together. And so it's a big issue. And why? Well, you know, as we age, have more birthdays. I like that. As you have more birthdays, let's stick with that. It just sounds so much nicer, doesn't it? Because birthdays are happy. Um, so as we have more birthdays, our body, again, we just talked about the kidneys have had more birthdays, the livers have more birthdays. We know that alcohol gets broken down in the liver. So your physiology, the ability to take care of medications and all of that stuff doesn't process as well because things have slowed down, you know, especially uh, if you have an alcohol use disorder though. Uh, but listen, I just read this article about super agers and I think I'm that where you don't age like everybody else. Okay. What I was getting more towards, yes, Things might slow down fine. There's people that have been healthy and have run their whole lives. But if you've been, if you have an alcohol use disorder, that's already negatively impacted your liver, which then impacts the ability to break down opioids or vice versa. Yeah. And of course, you know, things happen as you age and your blood alcohol goes higher when you drink. Uh, you have less balance than you had before. So we already talked about falls. And then you have slower reaction times. You except, can't catch yourself as you're falling. Otherwise, you're going to break your arm. Except me. I'm like a cat. Um, and, and Not falling. And some of us who are over the age of 60 have worse driving skills, and I could point out a couple of those people. Um, 
memory deficits. Um, but that's one of the issues too, is that people will have memory deficits. So all of these things contribute to well, and kind of an increase of alcohol-related harm. So well, opioids and, then, and right. alcohol. Yeah. Okay, so what do you do? <laughs> what do you do? How often is alcohol a concern? Oh, man. Oh In developed God. countries, 90% of people over the age of 50 drink alcohol at some level. And so as we Everybody. Evaluate, just assume it's everybody. Yeah, I mean, as we evaluate A 90% people, is like an A grade. Yeah, we need to... When we're looking at the safety of these things and we're having this shared decision-making, we have to look at, at the other issues that might do it, and alcohol is clearly one of them. Yeah, so... I think with everything we have ever done in in substance use disorder world, obviously we started with opioids and the key was always like identifying. Like how do you screen? How do you identify? It's acknowledging the person coming into the ER with horrible sweats, dilated pupils, vomiting, looks ill on your table. One of the things in your different or your differential diagnosis needs to be opioid withdrawal or you're going to miss it. So something like this in an older adult who's falling blah 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 you have to consider the fact that they may be drinking hazardous levels of alcohol yeah. as well, which is only making it much more unsafe. And when we're putting people on the opioids or leaving them on, we need to talk to them about that and counsel them about co-use for safety reasons. So you mean you actually have to ask the patient you have to talk about to them. their substances? Yeah, we need to talk to them. Um, and so... And you actually have to screen for opioid use disorder. Let's talk about patients on opioids on COPD. We got to hurry. How much picture. time have we got? I'm sorry. 25. Is this getting long? It's way too long. Oh, geez. Okay. So half of patients with COPD get opioids for chronic pain. Ooh. So that's bad. I mean, can we just point out that if we're talking COPD, we're talking sleep apnea, and we're talking Princess Leia. Yeah. Chronic opioids. Classic yeah. example. Everybody's and, favorite. And again, I, I think we have to understand, too, that a lot of these patients who've been on chronic opioids may have developed central sleep apnea. Yes. And so... It's not just about obstructive. People can have mixed, and these things can be an issue. So we need, in that conversation we're having with patients, in our shared decision-making, we need to look at their health as well, their lungs. <laughs> wait. We can't just g- give wait, them you, Wait, wait, wait. You mean you have to think about the entire person? That's pretty scary. But I think that that there are patients who need opioids. I don't think there's any doubt. I have had some in my career. For sure. That clearly need them. But it's also explaining, like, if you need opioids as needed or even maybe something daily, it's you have to counsel on, okay, let's talk about your alcohol intake. You should probably not do that. Or, you know, it's it's important for you to understand, like, we probably shouldn't push your dose because you also have sleep apnea or you have COPD. Yep. We okay. gotta look at it. Let's look at the Canadian study quickly, and then we'll be done. Oh, so COPD if COPD affects what roughly four to ten percent of the Canadian population. This is a Canadian study. Gosh, twenty sixteen. So this is old. So I would love to see new numbers. But five year mortality, depending on the severity of COPD itself, just for having COPD was forty to seventy percent. You will not be living in five years just because wow. you have COPD. And but, I. Go ahead, because I've if, basically lost it. If you are on opioids, hmm. your two-year mortality with severe COPD is 50%. So COPD with opioids together, in two years, you have a 50-50 chance, 50-50 shot of still being alive. Wow. I'm glad you finished that, because I completely lost my stu- my place. But I want to make one more comment. What? Patients with COPD and opioids, of course, increase ER visits, hospitalizations, 
and antibiotic steroids. It doesn't wow. just impact the, we always think, at least in my head, I always thought prior to like learning all this stuff, was that the only reason it was bad is because of the respiratory depression of opioids. And I think that's what a lot of people think. Uh. Like opioids slow your respiratory you know, respiratory, whatever, drive, throwing with COPD, you're going to die. But no, it's all these other things that play in. You lost me at COPD. And it's okay. not opioid dose related. Oh, so it doesn't matter. doesn't matter the dose. Well, I think that was the longest one we've done in a while. Sorry, everybody. Heather was like, she just wouldn't quit. There's a lot of tangents there. A lot of tangents. Well, we appreciate everybody listening today. And we will be back next week. Uh, if with we a can- mystery topic. Yeah, I I think we, I don't know, what was that one I was talking about we should do? Oh, an update on Kratom. Oh, Kratom. Yes. I have a whole bunch of new info. Okay. Thanks, Uh, everybody. This podcast is brought to you by Ars Longa Media. And produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman. And, of course, the music is by Battle Legs on Spotify. To reach out to us for any type of information or questions, please email us at the addiction connection podcast at gmail.com as i came by tara market tara market for to fee i met up with the farmer's child the barnyard's a delicacy lintonati to renetti lintonati to renee linton lauren 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 the barnyard's a delicacy he promised me the finest pair that i ever set my eyes upon when i got to the barnyard there was nothing there but skin and bone lintonati to renetti lintonati to renee Not get drunk, I can fight and not be slain. I can sleep with another man's wife and still be welcome to my Lynch and